Welcome to the History Slam podcast from ActiveHistory.ca. Here's your host, Sean Graham. Thank you, Adam. Welcome to the History Slam, everybody. I am Sean Graham coming at you today, nearly live from Ottawa, Ontario. Great episode for you today. This is one that I was very much looking forward to recording and uh, did not disappoint. So let's get right to it. Talking with Samantha Cutrera about the new book, Transforming the Canadian History Classroom, Imagining a New We. This is a topic that I have great interest in. It's really focusing on what do we talk about when we say Canadian history? What is included in that, in the we of Canadians? And it really delves into a lot of issues related to the the power of the nation state, the role of the nation state in our history, our ability as historians and instructors and people who are interested in history to ensure that all stories are included when we talk about the history of Canada, ensuring that people see their own stories reflected in the past. And it's a really powerful book, and I can't recommend it enough. And Samantha is one of the best in talking about these issues. And even though the book is called Transforming the Canadian History Classroom, the topics that are discussed are not focused exclusively or not relevant exclusively to people who teach and people who are in classrooms on a daily basis. This is a broader discussion relative to Canadian history, the history of Canada, and even the way that we understand and consider Canada here in the 21st century. So a lot of really relevant material here, a discussion that I very much enjoyed. And again, I can't recommend this book enough. Very thought provoking, really gets you thinking about Canada and its past. So I was so excited to have the chance to talk to Samantha Couture about the book. So let's get right to that conversation. All right. And Samantha Cutrera joins us from Toronto. Samantha, how are you today? I'm really great. It's uh, cold, but it's sunny and I don't have to go outside. So <laughs> I'm That's enjoying right. it. Yeah. It's uh, the, the winter being a little harsher right now. Maybe not as big of a deal in, as in other years, but you know, here in Ottawa, the Rideau Canal looks like it might be opening soon. I think there's some oh. excitement over that for some outdoor activity. What would you say is your favorite winter outdoor activity? Ooh, that's a great question. Okay, well, I actually really like winter despite not liking any winter sports. <laughs> <laughs> so my favorite movie is Little Women from 1994. And there is a couple scenes in there when they are walking through winter with their heavy petticoats. And uh-huh. so when I wear my like big vintage coat um, and like my big boots, I'm just like, I am channeling that kind of feminine glamour. <laughs> walking in the winter energy so I love a good snowfall and I love walking in it but like yeah I don't I don't do sports I don't do sports in the summer either so I would say like that's my favorite so I I do miss like wearing a coat and being outside but I like I'm not not so much that I'm going to wear a coat and go outside right (laughs) right Right. it's it's more just the idea of it than actually doing it that's yeah. right. <laughs> uh, so let's uh, let's get into the book, Transforming the Canadian History Classroom, Imagining a New We. And the first question that I, I have, and I, I went through the book and it's really well done. There's a lot to unpack in this topic. But for me, let's start with the last word of that subtitle of we, Imagining a New We. How do you consider Canadian history? And is it Or has it been traditionally a case of exclusion where we present we as a very specific type of individual as opposed to Canadians as an entire entity? Yeah, that's a great question. And it's a great way to start. Although I feel like we're just like starting with the lead (laughs) at that point. But, you know, so the book is about my work in Canadian history classrooms, primarily in high schools, but I do a lot of curriculum development and professional development for all ranges of history education. So from public education, elementary school, secondary school, college, university. And what I have found is that while often the educators are very interested and committed in demonstrating a multicultural, and I say cultures in like a many, many different ways, like gendered cultures, class cultures, uh, like all different types of cultures, 
that when they actually go to teach Canadian history, there is this particular vision of what Canadian history is and who Canadians are. And that notion, and so so I find that there's often this like weird like back and forthness, like, yes, there is this very multicultural history. All of you students are multicultural, but first, first, let's make sure we get the, like the Canadian history covered. And, um, what, when I say imagining a new we, it's because I really think that educators, like uh, all range of educators really need to understand that every single person sitting in that classroom is part of a we, whether or not they are like legally a Canadian, whether or not they were born in Canada, whether or not they belong to one of our um, uh one of our many groups that come here like as refugees and then like leave uh, after a year or a few months or as part of people that live on this land that don't consider themselves Canadians like First Nations, that all of these are part of a we that we really need to understand. And so what does that mean when we really put forward the past that are sitting in our classrooms rather than the past that are, that we often associate as Canadian. And I put kind of quotes around that because what happens is oftentimes that Canadianness is always associated with coloniality, with whiteness, with the, the French English founding story and without all of the other stories around it. So it's really a call to be able to say like, we say that we do one thing, but what do we actually do and how can we start really deconstructing and witnessing that deconstruction of a Canadian we so that we can be more present about all the stories in our classroom, all the lives in our classroom, all the past in our classroom, all the histories in our classrooms. So I guess where I would, I, I think about this is if we're talking about Canadian history, how much of this is related then to the nation state and the history mm -hmm. of the political entity that is Canada, because that story, and, and this is certainly the way I was taught, right? That Canadian yeah. history is the story of the nation state and the nation state story in the 19th century into the 20th century is one of exclusion, uh, intentional exclusion. And the power brokers of that political system were people who look like me. And therefore, the history of that nation state is going to be told from that perspective. So how much is it, do you think, a, a, a product of a focus on the political entity and the power brokers within that entity that has led to this focus on a very specific group of Canadians as told in the history classroom? Then we need to say that. Then we need to say, I am teaching, I am teaching the history of the development of this nation state, rather than say I'm teaching the I'm teaching Canadian history. Because those are different things. If we're saying I'm going to teach the history of the development of this nation state, then then we we need to center, explicitly center that conversation around politics and economics. But what happens is those conversations get conflated by saying Canadian history, which then leaves out all of the many different types of experiences in a nation state, in the development of a nation state, um, like the cultural, social, political, um, <laughs> uh, all these other experiences that are outside that. But if we're just going into a classroom and saying, okay, this whole class is to teach to teach about the history of this nation state. But we don't do that. We don't, we're not explicit like that because then um, if we were explicit like that, then we can choose as a student, for example, to say, yeah, I want to just learn about the politics and economics behind Canada developing as a nation state. I don't want to learn the history of this land and all of its people. Like those are two, saying that this is the history of the nation state which is fine, but then we need to say that. And we don't say that. We can just conflate it as being like, this is the history. But part of that too is that the nation state and the power of it has these tentacles that reach out everywhere, right? So if I think of some of my 
experience in the 1930s doing research and then into the Second World War, if you think about the way the so the the CBC is a cultural entity, it's kind of part of the political entity of the federal government in a way they will push back and say that they're not. But I mean, there's a lot of ways that it, that it is. But the way that the CBC indirectly presents what is a Canadian in the 1930s is a central Canadian white Anglophone. And that cultural significance is built off of that nation state. And it, it, so you see how all of these things do kind of come together. And it's it's kind of hard. And I've certainly found this in my teaching to clearly identify all the time how the idea of this centrality of a nation state becomes so influential in every other part of life and how and for me in pop culture particularly how hard it is to say that this imagery that you're seeing is an offshoot of what's going on elsewhere in this other level and how all of these things are so intertwined so it's kind of hard to make that distinction sometimes or am i just not seeing how these things can be separated out no no i i think you i think you're right i mean you can't separate the nation state from our, us being in the nation state. That's not what I was saying uh, with the answer before. What I was saying is, because I understood your question a little bit differently, which is if we are just talking about the politics and policies and the economics related to that, that right. is a different type of history than demonstrating the ways that those things influence lives and influence culture and society. And I think that we conflate, I, I think that we can conflate the politics and economics in ways that then leave out certain experiences that go beyond and across the nation state. But to to kind of get to like responding to the question about like the CBC in a different way, I would say then we also need to really understand what a nation is and to be able to understand the history of nationhood and a history of imperialism and colonialism and how these things are intertwined to understand how the nation works in gendered ways in classed ways in raced ways in ways that are based on ethnicity and notions about race in ways that they're based in 19th century enlightenment thinking that's cl close to colonialism like we can talk about the nation and the ways that it touches all these different elements of our lives and culture. But we also need to understand that like the nation itself as a concept is not, um, it didn't come out of the ether. <laughs> it right. is based in a very interest, like interesting political tradition. And the more we understand the histories of nation, like the invention of traditions, for example, the, the more we can understand all of these things, the more we can understand our lives within it. And that is a really interesting, complex, exploratory way to understand the past. But we often, we often just take the nation state as a political concept, um, as a given. And so it's like, how do we, how do, how can we unravel these things? So we're not just conflating it as something that's like, quote unquote, natural, you know? For sure. And it's one of these things living in Ottawa and teaching in Ottawa, there's a unique opportunities here. And, and when I've done a introductory Canadian history course at the University of Ottawa, we're steps away from Parliament Hill and I've used that to my advantage in that we go to Parliament Hill and I say, look around, look at the imagery, look at the statues that are put there. Why do you think they were put there? What is the message mm -hmm. behind these? Uh, you know, because that's really where uh, one very clear place where the nation state is trying to tell you this is what we value. This is what is mm -hmm. important to us. So go look at those things, that idolatry, that imagery right around the seat of government tells you a lot about what the institutions of power want to convey. Yes. And you could, one could, I don't want to add any more to the reading list, <laughs> but one could pair the, that trip and those discussions with theory on development of nation states to be able to see how Canada is not unique in its tradition of using some uh, particular types of symbols and imageries and and then what that does that look like and i really 
I really feel that we need to talk about Canada as a transnational country and that we need to understand the ways that we have always gone across and beyond borders of nations. And when we think of Canada as a singular nation, we can then also ask those questions about in what ways do other nationhoods, including First Nationhoods, intervene, intersect, and are erased from these types of images. Like that's a different type of thing than like, let's learn how we got from, how we got to 1867 and what 1867 is like in the last 152 years or whatever. But I guess that leads to another pretty broad, big question. But is there such a thing then as Canadian history as opposed to history of Canada, right? Mm. Like is, is is there something that unites coast to coast to coast as a singular Canadian history, because the more that I delve into it and the more I think about it, I mean, this is a a land that is separated linguistically, it's separated culturally, separated uh, ethnically by a variety of different ways. And, And I think about what actually unites everything together as a Canadian history and it's really hard to find that uniting purpose or that singular thing that that sh- runs right through it if it's not the nation state in a way. Uh, like that is the one thing that kind of has its hands everywhere. And so I, I do wonder about this question of do we of even just thinking about history as Canadian versus the history of Canada, which again, maybe that's one of those things that's a, a difference without a distinction. But in my head, those are very different concepts. Mm-mm. Well, let me just say a couple things. So first, in December, I was like, you know what I want to do before I'm 40, which is a couple years? I want to read a book from every country. And because I'm a Virgo, I went and got like a big map and all these questions. <laughs> and I've like been looking at all of this different like literature. And it's been it's been really cool. And it's been really wonderful. And since December, I've been spending a lot of time staring at a giant map, which I've never done before. And I've really like thought about and I, I grew up in um, well, I grew up in a lot of places, but I grew up in a couple of Caribbean islands. And so I've been really fascinated by islands and like looking at islands and how small they are. And then I go and I take a look at Canada and I'm just like, it's so fascinating, the size, the different sizes of countries and um, things like what does unite? What is a kind of quintessential element of this country or any country? And to be able to look at how big Canada is in relationship to all these things have been really, really fascinating. And I really don't want to suggest that we should throw the baby with the bathwater out. I don't think that we need to get rid of or not use Canada as a unifying nation, the concept of Canada as 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 a nation. I don't think we should just throw it out. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is that we need to, we need to not take things for granted. That like the uh, concept of a nation isn't taken for granted. The concept of how we understand a nation's history shouldn't be taken for granted. How we understand things like borders um, shouldn't be taken for granted because those types of things come from a very like I said, 19th century, enlightenment, colonial, imperial way of thinking. And that the more we just allow space for us to recognize that these are not natural things, the more we can play and explore of what these things mean. So I really don't want to suggest that we should throw out Canadian history or this notion of Canada. What I'm saying is that we need to I think generally we need to do a better job of allowing ourselves to deconstruct or in as Derrida, post-structuralism theory here, as Derrida actually meant it, to witness the deconstruction of this thing that we might consider whole or solid and imperfect, but still whole or, or solid. And I've been working on an article for a few years now. It's It's been a really interesting writing experience because it's I've allowed it to slow burn in a way I haven't done with other types of writing. But I have argued in that, that for young people in particular, we need to help them develop a Canadian identity that is braided with three strands. 
One is kind of a traditional Canadian nation state strand that is all around us and that really does influence so many of the ways that we can be in this country and on this land. And the second strand is the multiple cultures on this land, the multiple nations on this land, the multiple histories on this land, to be able to recognize that that a lot of that multiplicity of cultures and identities and ethnicities have always been here. And the third strand is a greater relationship with the land, to be able to understand the land that we're on in a more holistic way. And that when we braid those three elements of an identity together, we will be able to be able to see that deconstruction, be able to deconstruct the nation to be less exclusionary than it was designed to be. I think that's a, a certainly laudatory, but I, I can hear my teacher friends in my head as you say <laughs> that, who are who who always get on my case when I bring up certain things, who are saying, we have this many classroom hours, we're required to do this many things, we have to do this many tests, all these assessments, just from a, a practical perspective, because I know you have a background as, as in classrooms, working with students. From your experience and from all the work that you've done talking with teachers, how feasible is a change like that to put into place from the perspective of you know getting provinces on board, getting school boards on board, just the, the actual practical challenges in putting forth that type of idea, which sounds great to me, but I, I just hear my teacher friends being like, well, we have this, 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 and this to do. How do we find time to do that? Yeah, no, and that's completely fair. And I 100% respect the constraints that people feel in a classroom because of the curriculum. And they feel those because they are very real. And I totally get that. But if you flip over to chapter six of my book, (laughs) I talk about this way of approaching history called historic space. And I have been developing this since 2004 when I worked at a living history museum, so like a pioneer museum where I was in costume. And what I saw was that people wanted, and, and I was doing a bachelor's in um, interdisciplinary, uh, yeah, interdisciplinary, but transnational women's studies. And I could see that people came into our buildings wanting to have, wanting to know the things that they wanted to know. (laughs) Like they wanted their own ideas about what a quote unquote pioneer woman in this house looked like or, or acted like. And then once I validated that, even if it was untrue, then I could challenge it by saying like, okay, well, yeah, that's often what we think. Now let's let's go a little bit further. And so from there, I realized that people really think about histories in these kind of bubbles, these spaces that draw from their own, like the media and their own understanding of history and gender and race and class. Like they already understand history in these little spaces. And we as educators often replicate those not just educators, but like textbook writers and in movies, like we often think of like particular time periods as these really bound periods. I don't mean like historians that, that, you know, (laughs) try very hard to move that away, but that's often how most people start. So historic space starts with that. It says like, Yes, you have this unit that is often a chronological time period that aligns with a textbook. And and while the textbook, the textbook gets a really bad rap, they're often a very useful tool for teachers as a way to just keep um, like to keep on point. So I'm not I'm not just throwing out textbooks, but recognizing they are a symbol of a particular bound narrative. So let's say we have six classes to focus on one unit. So I talk in the the book about the post-World War II unit. So I say, spend the first two classes doing a concept mapping activity. Get students to go through the textbook, use post-it notes to see all of the like main names, dates, and themes that the textbook has put forward as important for this time period. And 
yeah, like students don't know <laughs> prime ministers, but they know the old white dude in a black and white photo with his name underneath it is going to be important. Like students are not dumb. They understand the logic of the textbook. So once they do that, they can then group um, these post notes into different kind of ideas. So I've seen students like put all the people together and then put all the like like things together and all the places together. Like there's no right or wrong. It's just a concept attainment activity to allow students to start to like see and recognize the concepts of this particular time period. And then after a couple days of that, it, it you know, it's, it is like one day of doing and one day of consolidating, then take two or three days to teach like these main concepts of the period. So in the class that the classes that I talk about in the book, we talked about um, the Cold War in one class, we talked about teen culture in another class. And we actually there was, <laughs> we actually wound up talking about both of those things kind of together in another class. So we had those three classes but then the rest of the unit. So now what has happened is that we've created an overview of everything. We're using that concept map. We can see it through our whole unit. We've taught some main concepts. So the the students know the main names, dates, and places and things of a time period. But then the rest of the unit, the other three days, the other four days, we challenge that. Mm -hmm. We challenge that grand narrative we just mapped. We challenge it by... Sometimes just like flipping over the page in a textbook and being like, well, let's learn more about this photo of these people that we don't actually know anything about. And sometimes it is about finding a totally new history. But what we're doing is that we are allowing ourselves to learn about this traditional way of understanding history through these challenges that help us understand the complexities of this. So it's not just bringing in new histories, it's allowing the histories to talk with each other. And right now, using primary sources is such an important, big focus in so many history classrooms. And this is where you can bring those primary sources in to inquire and ask questions and to be able to have a more broad conversation. So it starts with recognizing the main history, the curriculum, the, the nation, and, and recognizing it and teaching that, but not doing it in a way that holds it so precious that you can't spend most of the time challenging it. And I talk about it in chapter six. I talk about it throughout the book, like when I'm, I'm, I'm using it as a couple concepts, but I have found over and over and over again that this is a way to cover what needs to be covered, but then go further. And I should also just say that I have found that teachers, especially in Ontario, I know Ontario curriculum the best, but I have done a review of all the different um, provinces and territories, that teachers will, will tell you that there's actually a lot of room to do a lot of different stuff in the curriculum. And in Ontario, that's very true. But then when asked or suggested or invited to do something a little bit different, that's when that we comes in. And they're like, oh, no, the curriculum actually like really doesn't want us to do that. We really need to focus on something more traditional. We need to focus on that we, <laughs> that, that, right. that traditional we of Canada. And so it's finding space to like cover the curriculum, but to be able to allow complexity and challenge. And how much of that process of, of challenging the traditional narratives is part of having students see themselves in the past. I know that comes up mm. in the book throughout. And it's something that I had this experience where I was teaching international students Canadian history. And it was the Canadian 101 course, Canadian History 101. And the majority of the students, I think actually all but one of them, were Chinese international students. And so when I got to things like the head tax, for instance, or the railroad and the, the construction of the railroad, you could see them their interest being peaked a little more because it was people from China directly affected Chinese citizens or Chinese born uh, Canadians. And y y it was easy to see how they were interested in that. So I'm, I'm wondering, does the reflection of self in the past, how important is that to get students interested and get them invested in the broader content and the concepts that you're trying to present? 
So that's a great question. In chapter three, I talk about using the voices of students, that what students want in their history classrooms is connection, complexity, and care. And so this notion, just like you said, like you had students from China and you talk about um, Chinese people in Canadian history, like you had that connection and they they peak up, like that connection is great. And what I talk about in the book is that like students definitely want that. But what they want even more is complexity. And what in particular black students that I worked with in the research, they were like, yeah, like my teacher brings in like a handout or she'll do, she'll show a photo of black people or she'll be like, hey, who's excluded from this picture, everyone? It's black people and you're black, get it? That connection is fine. It's the complexity that students really, really want. Like students, it's not like students have this idea that the past was as multicultural. I mean, actually, I would argue that the past is as multicultural as it is now. It just it just is different. It's a different type of multi and a different type of cultural. But um, put that aside. Students don't necessarily think that classrooms look like the classrooms now in the past 50 or 100 years ago. But it's the complexities that they're really looking for. So it's the complexities of things like injustice, racism, sexism. It's the complexities of an experience of an immigrant, even if that immigrant is from a different country than than students in the classroom. It is saying like, you know what, I don't actually have any more information on these people in this photograph that represent an ethnic group different than mine. Why don't we take a, like, why don't we do some research together to be able to find that out? And it is the complexity of it. How do these people and these histories challenge this, this other way of that history in Canada is often taught? that we often teach Canadian history? How does how do these people just being here challenge that? Because so many young people see themselves as, as just embodying a challenge to this traditional notion of the Canadian nation. And so it's that kind of challenge that they want as well. So I am a cisgendered uh, white woman who is straight, who identifies as heterosexual. But when I, whenever I saw histories in growing up that had to do with any sort of element of queerness, I recognized that that was a complexity to gender that was outside that was outside just like men's history. And so I was really drawn to that, even though it didn't connect to my own identity. And so I really, so yes, connection's important, but the complexity of it is so much more important. And that's where that third element of care comes in. Because it's not just like caring that students have their identities recognized in the classroom. Like that's certainly important, but to be understand the complexities of their identities and that you as an educator might not actually understand those complexities. So allow them to, allow them to flourish. So for example, I worked with a student, I, and this was not a Canadian history classroom. This We were talking about the French Revolution, and she was really like not interested. And I said, oh, well, what did you do last night? She's like, I went to a heavy metal concert. And I said, oh, well, do you see any connections between heavy metal concerts and the French Revolution? And like, I don't. I don't listen to heavy metal music. <laughs> I have no idea. And she's like, Yeah. Yeah. And she started to pull out all of these things I never would have read because I would have just been like, all right, you know, she's like stoner, metalhead. She's not really interested in this. Like if I just thought about connection, I wouldn't have invited the complexity in. And it was such a cool moment because I learned so much. Like I was like, yes, <laughs> that's so that's so interesting. Thank you so much for allowing me to hear what you have to say today. <laughs> And they're like, it's like that type of care that we need to engender as much as we can in our classrooms to be able to see well, like our students as people with complex, sorry to interrupt, like complex no. personalities and histories and experiences that they're really just trying to figure out and that we can help, help them navigate it by just validating them. Right. And, and that's sort of what I was getting going to say is that the idea of seeing yourself doesn't have to necessarily fit into a certain box because mm. there is a universal human experience 
that you can find connections to pretty much anyone or anything from the past because there is that just universal, we all walk around or live in this space. And I'm often guilty of saying there's the core things that everyone kind of wants, right? Everyone wants to be safe. Everybody wants to be fed. Everybody wants to have love in their life. Those are universal. And I don't think they have ever changed in the course of human history that these are the things that people want. And you can find connections to stories from the past. And I think it's powerful when you say that it's not just a case of seeing yourself as defined in a, a certain box, whether it's as a, a woman or as a minority or as whatever it is, like however you identify yourself, it, you're not limited to a certain checkbox on a form that you submit to the federal government, right? There's so much more complexity to it and allowing for that does make more for a way more powerful experience, not only for, as you say, the students, but for you as the educator. And it allows learning opportunities for everybody in the space, which makes the greatest educational experience. Yes, definitely. Definitely. Because and I so as you might know, I did a video series last year and I one of the people I interviewed, and it's funny because I'm not used to being interviewed, so <laughs> <laughs> um, and one of the people I interviewed was uh, Timothy Stanley, who's a historian and history uh, educator, educator. And he was like, I think that the more we focus on connections uh, of those human elements, the more we can understand how small the world is and how much we have in common with people. But that is also about the complexities of what that means and what that looks like. Because if you are only focusing on these these connections, then it's only going to be like Black students black learn Black history, Asian students right. learn Asian history, and that's Inuit students learn Inuit history. Those are examples I use in the book. And, um, and we never get towards seeing that we and seeing right. the complexity of the we and and how and and how we are all connected through that we and through those complexities. For I just sure. feel like that was a big circle of an answer. <laughs> <laughs> well, the, another thing with the the complexity of it, and this is something that comes up a lot, and certainly in the context of the debate around Sir John A. Macdonald, I think this is something that comes up, and it's one of my biggest pet peeves. And I have had students say this to me. And I, I try to challenge it, but the idea of, well, that's just the way it was, or everybody felt this way, particularly when you're talking about slavery, this is something that comes up like, oh, everyone was okay with slavery. You know uh, who wasn't okay with slavery? The slaves weren't cool with it. Like they, they were really kind of were not cool with it. Yeah. You know, I mean, so, you know, it's, it's erasure of people in the past who in the moment their voices were suppressed by whatever powerful group or, or structure was in place and then to do it again in the past. So I, I'm really curious to know, like for when you're confronted with that type of response to something, whether it's in a classroom or whether it's in a museum in some sort of a public history space, what is a good strategy for people to use when they're confronted with this? Well, that's just the way it was approach to the past. To be able to demonstrate examples of that's not the way it was, to be able to understand, to give them examples of the complexities of the past, um, to be and and not to be heavy handed, but to say, like, I had a conversation with somebody in which they said the same thing you did, like, oh, well, people, everyone thought slavery was OK. <laughs> I was like, not the enslaved people. And it, it, they were just like, uh, oh, my God, like, who am I understanding to be everyone? Right. And how much does that everyone hold the pen? And how much does that everyone um, define what is recorded and what is important to be archived? And that is why I think like the historic space understanding of history is really useful because going back to my like pioneer museum days, um, there was a woman that I worked with and she worked in the tin shop. And so it was a trades building and um, people would come in all the time and say to her like, well, you shouldn't be here, right? Ha ha ha. <laughs> and she's <laughs> like, 
Okay. Yeah. No, actually, I can 100% be here because there's a lot of examples of family businesses. And, you know, like she was able to demonstrate those examples. And often people were like, sure, sure, and would leave. I found it useful. And I, I'm certainly not putting down her response because she was the one that had to deal with it multiple times a day. But to be like, yeah, that's certainly what you would expect, huh? This is why our understanding of that is wrong right? Like just to be able to kind of turn that around. And some people don't actually want to hear it because they just really want their their very traditional notions of gender, race, class, ethnicity to just be validated. But for people that are kind of on the edge to be like, oh, I didn't realize it was wrong in that way. Um, I, have, I have found that effective whenever I am teaching. I'll give another example that's kind of, I'll give another example that's kind of similar but different. When I was teaching about teen culture in the Cold War period to a group of Black students, I talked about um, Elvis Presley, and all of a sudden the the class energy changed. There was something about the class energy that changed. I really couldn't understand what it was. And one of the students just kind of like, like muttered in the background, like, um, Elvis Presley hated black people. <laughs> I was like, excuse me? That's that's not true. And then someone else was like, yeah, he used the N-word all the time. He would talk about how black people weren't fit enough to shine his shoes. And I was like, uh, I, I don't think any of that is true. And they were like, no, it's true. So here I was facing this, this group of students that had this reality that was totally separate from mine. So I was like, okay, well, I've never heard that. So thank you for bringing that to me. Let me see what I can find out. So I went home and I Googled it and I found, I found that it, that the story was a kind of a mythical story, but the cultural elements of it and the way it's gotten passed down, I was able to find like where that misinformation started and where the, like that uh, passing down the misinformation happened. And so the next day I was like, hey, everyone, like, thank you so much. I didn't even know this history. So here is the history of what you were saying and why it's actually inaccurate. And the students were like, oh, like just, okay. You know, and I don't know if they all left with completely changed minds, but we were able to talk about it. And then I was also saying, but also here is where it sits in the legacy of like white people appropriating black music. And so that's really interesting too. And then we were able to talk about that part of the history. And so here I was validating the misinformation and then being able to provide examples of, of history that we, that might be more accurate. And I think that's a really good example, too, of how personal feeling can influence the way people think about the past. And you see it a lot of people want the past to validate their contemporary perspective and the way they feel about a certain issue. And I do find that often can be somewhat dangerous to come to a historical discussion or a historical topic with your endpoint in mind. You're saying, all right, this is where I need to end, even if it's not necessarily conscious like you're like when people are like all right here's how i feel what in the past can validate how i feel today that can be a somewhat dangerous minefield to walk through but i, I like this approach of validating sort of the sense that they have while also providing the opportunity to offer that complexity offer that dissenting opinion dissenting perspective within a space that respects their feelings because nobody ever gets their mind changed or very few people ever get their mind changed by being told you're wrong like stop it <laughs> this strikes me as a much more effective approach not only in a classroom but just in general in the way that we can all engage and interact with each other and have more productive useful conversations about what's going on in the past so i know that this book is about teaching or based off teaching experiences in, in the classrooms. But would you consider this a public history book more so than necessarily a book about education? Because as I was going through it and as we've been talking, that's how I would frame this, I think. I would say yes. I, I would say yes. Like one of my fears for the book is that people will see that I'm talking about high school students in a high school classroom and think that, that it's about high school. 
and it's not. It's really about Canadian identity. It's really about how we understand Canadian identity, how we pass it on, how we think about it, how we teach it, how we learn it, how there are generational differences between students and educators, you know, a particular type of student, obviously, but that there is also differences between students and educators in any kind of situation that we need to think about because there wouldn't be that relationship between student and teacher if they everyone just kind of knew the same stuff and how important it is for us to continuously interrogate and and really witness that deconstruction of the stories that we think are solid the stories that we think are universal and like national in its universality and how we can have a much more robust understanding of Canadian identity when we allow, when we aren't so precious about what this we is and how we are a lot more open to exploring what it is. And so I really do hope that, that I, I mean, I certainly hope that high school teachers will read it, but I really also would love for people to be able to discuss it in public history circles, to be able to to think about what are my assumptions when I am creating a situation of learning? What, um, what are my assumptions about the nation? And how am I, how am I ratifying a grand narrative, even if I think that I am, uh, even if I'm challenging it? Um, you know, I, this book is really based in learning theory, meaningful learning theory coming from Joseph Novak says that for learning to happen, meaningful learning in particular, you need connection to prior knowledge. You need the assent of the learner. So somebody needs to believe, like be comfortable in this learning environment to allow this new information to get into their cognitive structures. Um, and I'm sure everyone can think of an example where you just like didn't like the person at the front of the room. And so you just like tuned out. That's because you weren't choosing to learn. You weren't making that ascent to learn. So connection to prior knowledge, ascent to learn. And then the third thing is meaningful content. And that meaningful content I would say is about connection and complexity, but how can we, in all the different ways that we want to mobilize the past, whether it's as an archivist, whether it's an exhibit designer, whether it is um, writing popular nonfiction um, or academic nonfiction, teaching in front of the classroom, what are the ways that we can we can deconstruct these things, but also allow for a greater understanding of how we all come to these spaces? Now, part part of understanding that I think in terms of the book itself as a as a piece that people will go and read is the moment in which it was written. In the introduction, mm-hmm. you mentioned that you come back you come back to this project after a few years uh, of finishing the dissertation. It's written in this era of reconciliation within a, a greater public awareness. Uh, or public voicing of Black Lives Matter. There's certainly more attention on that within media circles recently. So how does the contemporary perspective or the contemporary events of governments, of media taking greater attention on these types of issues influence the way the book is written and perhaps the way the audience could react to some of the content that is included in the book? So... So yes, I did this research in 2011, um, <laughs> and one very unhelpful person was like, why would anyone care about a 2011 classroom? <laughs> oh, jeez. Oh, thank you. This is sweet. Um, everyone is that, review- that must have been reviewer number two, right? <laughs> <laughs> that was a reviewer that was like, you know, this this book could just be a history of history education. <laughs> I was like, you, sir, would like a different book. <laughs> Um, and I actually write in this, like, I am not interested in, like, Ken Osborne has done such great work in the history of history education in Canada. That's not what this book is. But I had to take some time from it to be able to really understand 
what I was seeing in this one particular classroom between these this white teacher and these black students, if that was just because like maybe the teacher and I didn't get along. But then I worked, I, I developed the education and exhibition program at the Archives of Ontario. I was doing province-wide professional development. I met so, ama- so many amazing, amazing teachers. But I also see a lot of these things coming back in. And I do a lot of work as a history education strategist, helping other public history spaces kind of transform some of the exhibits and things that they do. And I just kept seeing some of these same elements that I was talking about in the book, which is closing down this version of Canada. And so in 2014, 2015, I started to revive this work and we were coming up to the sesquicentennial. Um, The TRC came out with their um, uh, with their report and their calls to action. And so the first draft of the book was like responding to that particular moment. And then because of some personal things, um, I wasn't finished. I didn't finish. Well, I did. Uh, there were drafts in between. But the book obviously came out this year, right after Black Lives Matter, six years later. And I remember talking to the editor in 2015 and saying like, if we don't get this out for the sesquicentennial, I'm kind of worried that the, that, that the, that like the moment is going to be gone. And she's like, it's immediate, but it's also enduring. And that allowed me to remember that these things that we're talking about, these things about reconciliation, about anti-racism, about um, a more expansive understanding of gender and sexuality, these things are continuously happening and evolving. And that this notion of understanding Canadian identity in these more complex ways has many different moments along its along some sort of trajectory to be able to to be able to understand that kind of evolution. And so I knew this was coming out right after there was a much more of a push for anti-racist education after the Black Lives Matter protests this summer. But my commitment to Black students and Black histories and to be able to understand them as the core of understanding how I like to think about Canadian history and how we need to understand that deconstruction goes beyond and before that particular moment. And I think that's really important for educators to remember, too, that when the TRC came out with the calls to action, everyone was super keen to jump on that. Obviously, that's very important. But then it starts to lessen because it's it's less around. The same thing with Black Lives Matter and anti-racist co- uh, content, like people were all about it in the summer and it starts to lessen as we move or move further away from it. So the book is really saying that this is a continuous understanding of identity and that yes, we can link to current moments, but I've been thinking about these things for 10 years and like luckily uh, uh, due to this random encounter on the bus I've actually met some of the students from this research who are now like adults which is just bizarre <laughs> and like it's not like their experience 10 years ago is much different than the students experiences now and so we we can't just be reactive to particular moments we really need to make a long-term commitment um, especially people who are white such as myself to be able to understand the complexities that we are often allowed not to see because of our whiteness and the same things with gender and with with our class orientations so to be able to really to to know that we can read it in this moment but if we can read it 2 years from now we'll also have these other things that we can pull it from it that it's a long-term commitment it's not just a commitment from this moment i think that's really well said and it it Two is part of, as, as I was going through it, this notion of, and, and it's something that I've tried to do more and more of, but you know, there's ego involved of when you're at the front of the room, mm-hmm. it, it's getting away from that voice of God sort of thing that I'm the authority. I know what's going on. You know, there, you have to be humble in these experiences too, to allow for that complexity and that what you're presenting, you have to allow space for that to be challenged to provide students the opportunity to engage with it in a in a way that offers complexity, caring, all these things that you're talking about. And that's one of the messages that I certainly took away as I was going through it too, is just always remind yourself when you're at the front of the room that doesn't, I mean, it gives you a certain authority, I guess, but it's not like a capital A authority. Mm. Yeah. And 
you know, somebody asked me another question, like, what are three takeaways that you want teachers to get from this book? And I only had one, which is you don't own the stories. Like, just know that yeah. you don't own the stories. And I am someone that really likes to lecture. I, I, I'm not going to not lecture. Like, I actually enjoy that as a particular type of pedagogical model that I pair with other activities. But I don't own the stories. When the students say, like, no, that's not right, then it's my responsibility to hear that. Like, yeah. and, um, and, you know, especially for like people that are teaching for the first time, like you think you need to know everything and do everything and you don't want to, you don't want to in any way give up your authority. But I have found over and over and over again, when I say to students, ah, oh, geez, I don't know that. I'm going to look that up. They have far greater respect for my authority when I follow up with that promised research than if I'm just like, that's not important. Let's move on. Yes. You're allowed to say, I don't know, but you can't say, I don't know. Let's move on. That's <laughs> right? right. Yeah. Yeah. So for anybody who wants to find it, Samantha, where yeah. can people find the book? Where can they go uh, and find more information, not just about the book maybe, but about you and your broader work in this space? Well, you just do a Google search on my name and I pop up everywhere. <laughs> so um, you can get the book on the UBC website it's called Transforming the Canadian History Classroom, Imagining a New We. Um, you can also get it at big, large bookstores. You can obviously order it from independent bookstores like A Different Booklist, which is a Black-owned bookstore in, um, in Toronto. I was going to say in Canada. Um, <laughs> you can find me at uh, www.samanthacotrera.com. There's also an aligned website for this book that has a teacher's guide with questions um, for teachers. If if any, I don't think anyone's taking on more <laughs> stuff right now. But like when teacher book clubs um, come back, if you're interested in um, having some guided reading, the imagininganewwe.com website allows for some of that. Like I said, if you do a Google search, you'll find my Twitter account, my Facebook account, and my YouTube channel. Last year, as a way to start talking about the book, I, like this time last year, I started a video series called Imagining a New We that wound up transforming to this set of amazing conversations I had with people during the pandemic about the notions of history and this notion of we and teaching history. I did a hundred, uh, over a hundred videos last year. And so that's really cool to be able to, to be able to talk about the book before it even came out. So I'm very easy to find and um, the book is really easy to find. And I was so happy that the publisher just decided to go with a paperback and not a hardcover first. So it's actually at a very affordable price point. Um, oh, and one more thing. I do have a podcast channel that the videos come from. And if you go to the podcast channel, I actually do an audio version of chapter one if you wanted to listen while you're waiting for your book to come in. Nice. Uh, that's yeah. awesome. And chapter one is meaningful learning, imagining a new we. So you, you get right into it right off yeah. the top. And it's yeah. long. I mean, it's a four, 39 page chapter too. So nice. Yeah. Nice, uh, so. I set it up with critical race theory, post-structuralism, and intersectional feminist theory to really like demonstrate how these these different theories can allow us to understand history in, like I said, more connected and complex ways, and and how they are they are tools that have been around in a like they they're situated in particular histories themselves, and so they help us see this moment in different ways than we can see it now. Awesome. We definitely encourage everybody to check all that out, check out the book and everything that Samantha is doing. Even if you're not a teacher, an educator of history, I think the discussions, the analysis in this book will provide for a better understanding or, or a way to reevaluate how you think about history, how you think about Canada and your discussions about history. Because, I mean, if you're listening to the show, obviously you have some interest in the past and always rethinking these things, being critical, analyzing our perspective of the past is really important. I think this book does that in a very, very powerful, very effective manner. So definitely encourage everybody to go check it out. Samantha Cotrera, thank you so much for talking with me today and congratulations on the book. 
Thank you so much, Sean. This was really great. And I really appreciated talking about it with a historian and these really cool questions about nation and identity in the nation and teaching and learning in your particular context. So thank you so much for inviting me. So there you have it. My discussion with Samantha Couture, and I thank her for her time in joining me. Again, transforming the Canadian history classroom, imagining a new we. Again, not something that is exclusive to people who are teaching. A lot of relevant material. If you have an interest in Canadian history, which I imagine you do if you've made it an hour in to this podcast, I would encourage you to check it out. So there's there's a lot there. You can also head on over to Samantha's website, which is samanthacoutrera.com. We'll link to that in the show notes or head on over to imagininganewwe.com. Again, I'll link to that in the show notes for resources there. She also has a video series that she mentions in the episode. So you can check all of that out there. Really encourage you to, and and let us know what you think of this and some of the ideas that are included. I, I think this is a book and a discussion that is not intended to be definitive. It's intended to get the discussion going, to get us all thinking about these ideas and the way in which we consider and understand Canada's past. So do feel free to get in touch. I, I, I hope it comes through on the show how much I enjoy having these types of discussions. So please do reach out if you are interested. But for now, that'll do it for this week's episode. Thank you so much for listening. If you have not yet, please do subscribe to the show, wherever it is you get your podcast, do the likes, the ratings, comments, all that kind of stuff to beat the algorithms, helps other people find the show, keeps us growing. And of course, head on over to activehistory.ca for all of our past episodes, bunch of great posts over there in the past week. So do check that out and do let me know what you want to hear on the show, slam at gmail.com or feel free to reach out on Twitter at the Sean Graham, always looking for new fun ideas for the show. So we'll be back with you again next week. But until then, if you're out and you see Enrico Palazzo, please say hi for me. Thanks for listening to the History Slam podcast. Be sure to check out Active History for more features, articles, and be sure to subscribe on iTunes.